This is Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church. I had the great privilege of traveling to Elgin, Illinois, uh, to talk to the congregation there about suffering. We did it in three parts. This is part one, God and suffering, where we consider the problem of theodicy and how uh, evil can be in the world while God is both powerful and good. Uh, this, I'm glad also that when, you know, Pastor Bester was thinking, I, I want to do a topic on uh, Christian suffering. So who could cause and inflict the most suffering that I came to mind? Uh, so I, I appreciate that. Uh, and, and God be praised. It's a very, very timely and important topic that we have today. Uh, to consider this topic of um, of suffering and what it and what it means to us, because um, because it, it just, the way it's going to go, I mean, from this point forward, the the church will suffer not less but more. And uh, and one of the problems that we have when we consider the idea of suffering uh, is that it comes to us as a surprise. You know, we we uh, uh, the, the on your outline you might see that the first verse we have there is from First Peter four. Uh, and it says, beloved, don't be surprised. And one of the problems with, with when, when we have suffering is that we are, are surprised by that suffering. We're shocked by it. We, we're not expecting it. Uh, and so it catches us unawares. So in some ways, uh, this, uh, I hope this morning, will be uh, kind of preparation for suffering. Uh, uh, it, it, it will be, a, uh, it'll be to, to undo the surprise part of suffering. Now, this doesn't take away the suffering part of suffering, but it can take away the surprise. Now, I, I, I think we would we be well spent to just have Pastor Bestial preach his sermon that he gave us this morning like three or four more times and get a chance to meditate on it because that was beautiful. That, that our suffer, the, the, the way that our suffering ends is finally in the consideration of Christ's suffering for us. Uh, and we'll probably work on that a little bit this morning uh, and, and consider what that means uh, as well. I have, uh, I have the idea of kind of looking at this in three parts, suffering and God, suffering from God, and suffering for God. So those are kind of the three broad categories that uh, we'd like to consider, and I have the outline there in front of you uh, in which we can go through those things. We want to also dig into the Scriptures, so the hope is, if you don't remember anything else, that you've, you've learned a thing or two about the Bible this morning, uh, and that's really where the, uh, the fruit will be. Uh, I think that's uh, that's all is by way of introduction. I want to, but, but uh, uh, Pastor Bestial mentioned, you know, if you do have questions or comments or anything like that, just let me know, and uh, and we'll we'll consider those uh, as well. And feel free to, you know, I, it doesn't bother me if you get up and get an extra cup of coffee or three or four, or, uh, and uh, to keep you going and a snack and this sort of thing. Um, I mean, I, it's incredible that it's, it's look 9:30 on Saturday morning and you all are here. To think about Christian suffering, that itself is uh, <laughs> really something. Uh, it's, it's wonderful, you know. So all my, uh, my congregation is still all asleep. So, Oh, I, that was the thing I wanted to say, though. But whenever you, a couple of you mentioned that you were through Aurora or through Colorado this summer, uh, and you didn't stop and visit, shame on you. <laughs> Uh, but thank, I mean, thank you for your hospitality, and please give us a chance to repay it and come and visit us at Hope. Uh, and, uh, and all the people would love to meet you and say hello to you and rejoice together in the Lord's kindness. Let's begin with a prayer. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks 
that you have handed your son over to suffering for us. And we pray that in considering his suffering and his death, that we might have comfort and confidence in the suffering that you hand to us. That you would give us patience and strength to endure. And that you would confirm our hope by the gift of the Spirit in our sure hope of the resurrection. For we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Well, let's begin with uh, the, the God and suffering and really the problem of suffering. Uh, the, uh, the problem of suffering is a, a philosophical problem. And uh, in fact, I, I think wrestling with the problem of suffering is one of the things required by any kind of philosophy. And I think there's a theological, uh, there's an analogous theological problem. So you all have probably heard uh, Pastor Bestial or your own pastor talk about the, uh, the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian. Does that, let me see how many heads nod. A couple, okay, a couple. There, there's, a, there's a theological problem that doesn't have an answer. And the question is, why, why are some people saved and not others? Now, really, whenever you start to dig into theology, you, uh, you end up eventually running into that dead end, r- running into that question. Why are some saved, not others? We know on the one hand that everybody is a sinner and can do nothing to be saved. We know on the other hand that, that God does everything to save us, that our faith and trust in him is a work that he alone does. And we know that some people will be saved and not others. And we can't fit those three things together. It doesn't make sense. So, so you have the theological construct that tries to answer it. Well, why are some saved and not others? Well, because God wants to save some and not others. And that's a Calvinist doctrine, and you're wrong. That's not what the Scripture says. It says God desires for all to be saved. Well, then you go the other way. You say, well, the difference must be man. I must have something to do with my salvation. It must have been at least my decision or at least my acceptance or at least my, my, uh, that I didn't uh, 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 reject it or something like that. So my will must have had something to do with the reason that I'm a Christian and I'm not. And that's the Arminian doctrine, the free will doctrine that really defines American Christianity. And that's also wrong. Now, well, what's the difference? Well, if we're saved, it's because God has done it all. If we're damned, it's because it's because of our own fault. And you can't get any further than that. You have to stop. Now, what we see and and on purpose, you have to stop. In other words, any answer to the question is wrong. There is no answer that we can achieve by in, in our own mind. Any answer is wrong. And we start to see now that there's a, a pendulum here uh, that 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 uh, that the Lord has established that will either be comforted in our mind, but then will despair in our conscience, or will be comforted in our conscience and despair of our mind. In other words, if I want to rationally answer the question, why are some saved and not others? I, if I rationally answer it, I'll have the comfort of an answer in my mind. But every single answer completely destroys my Christian comfort. That, that, that I'm saved because I did something? There's no comfort in that. Or that God decides some to be saved and others to be damned? There's no comfort in that as well. It's like a teeter-totter. Remember the teeter-totter? Where 
uh, I would sit on the edge and I'd have all three of my kids in there up here. <laughs> and then I'd step off and poof, they'd fly down. Dad! I think teeter-totters are illegal. I haven't seen them. The seesaw? I haven't seen them in the... They must be deadly. <laughs> but this is like a seesaw. That's what it is. Not the te- the, It's a seesaw. So either my mind is going to be comforted or my conscience, but they can't both be comforted at the same time. Now, does that make sense? Now, there's a, there's a, when we come to the problem of suffering, we have a similar thing, not in theology, but in philosophy. And we have three assertions that we cannot simply mash up together. Okay? And the, I think the assertions are there on your, on, your, uh, on your outline. The first is that God is all-powerful. True. The second, that God is all-good. Also true. And the third is that there is deep and profound suffering in the world. Also true. Now, uh, the way that we want to try to rationalize it is simply by erasing one of those things. Okay? I can't make them all three fit together, so, I'm, so I philosophically have to mark out one of them. Now, the Buddhist, for example, will mark out the last one. Now, uh, you know how the, the, this is the Buddhist sort of thing. The Buddhist in the Eightfold Path and all this sort of stuff, and they say, suffering is an illusion. It's caused by our affections. And so the whole track of Buddhism is to disconnect ourselves from the world so that we ascend suffering. And, and, and we achieve nirvana, which is the disconnect from all affections, and therefore we suffer no more. Okay? Now, uh, uh, there's different theological answers. You guys have heard of this, um, oh, what is this rabbi who wrote the book? Uh, oh, I've, now I forgot. What is it? Yeah, why do bad things happen to good people? And he said, well, the reason is because God is not all-powerful. He says that this world is a fight between God and the devil, and God is not all-powerful. That's why they're suffering in the world. So he marked out that first thing. You, know? you see, the, the, to, to settle these things, you have to mark out one of these assertions. But all of that is wrong. The other, the, the, uh, when you basically face up with the secularists or the new atheists of our age, what do they do? They say God is not good. And if you encounter a new atheist any time... You're walking around and you start to talk theology with them. This is what they will argue. You look at the Bible. You look at all the wars. You look at God, you know, telling the people to go into Cana and conquer and all this. And you see that God is not good. That's their assertion. And that's the way they settle this problem. But we realize that these three things are all true from the scriptures, that God is all powerful, that God is all good, and that there is suffering in the world. And there's no way to fit them together in our minds. And the reason is because if we were to settle it in our minds, it would destroy the comfort that the Lord intends for us in the gospel. There's an or between the comfort of the mind and the comfort of the conscience. And what the scriptures are going to deliver to us is comfort in our consciences. Now, this is what is being captured in, you probably have heard uh, 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 plenty of people uh, teach and preach on this, and they'll say, and they, they'll give you a little cliche, which is, this is what's behind it. And they'll say, in the midst of suffering, God doesn't give us answers. He gives us promises. He doesn't give us answers. He gives us promises. And that's true. That, in fact, is how the Lord works. So that we are asking the question, why, all the time? Why suffering? Why suffering? But that question doesn't have an answer. Okay? But it has a response. 
And the response is, I love you. I've suffered for you. I forgive you your sins. And I want to show that to you in the book of Job. Does that sound good? So, uh, so let's turn to Job chapter 1. If you have your Bible there. You know, Job is wrestling with this problem. There's some Bibles over there. Those Bibles all look nice. You got the one with the study notes, you got the one without the study notes, and then you got the super big ones. The, the, those are, it's a large print. So the, the problem with the large print ones is that uh, if your eyes are that bad that you can't see, then you're probably not strong enough to lift that thing, right? <laughs> I know. I know where that is, how that goes. We have people at Hope, we, uh, we have both the old hymnal and the new hymnal, the TLH and the LSB. And, uh, and when people got the LSB, they said, this is too heavy. Oh, I never thought about that. How heavy it is, you know, just rested on the head of the kid that's sitting in the pew in front of you. Job chapter 1. Now, um, the book of Job, is, the chapter 1 and 2 of Job is really quite beautiful because it's, it's one of these, it's a treasure that uh, in the scripture we get a glimpse into the heavenly council. This is a, We don't, I don't think we talk enough about the heavenly council. Uh, we, it, we used to a lot in the church, but we've just kind of lost that language or that idea is that there's, um, that there's a chamber room uh, where the Lord sits. A throne room is what it is. And in it is the throne where God, where God sits on his throne. And, uh, you know, one of the marks of the prophets, you can look at this in Jeremiah 23, is that the mark of the prophet is that he stood in the council of God. Uh, he's been taken uh, in some way, either by vision or in the spirit or, or, or even just even physically somehow. He's taken into this, into the, into the throne room of God, and he's heard the conversation going on there. He's seen the activity of the heavenly council, and, uh, and he's able to come to earth and preach what he heard there. So we get a glimpse into the heavenly council, this heavenly throne room of God, a couple of times in the scripture. And Job chapter 1 is one of the fullest pictures. We also see it uh, in Zechariah. We see it in, uh, in Ezekiel. We see it in Isaiah. Remember the holy, holy, holy? When, when Isaiah sees the throne of God filling the, the temple. And you know who spent 40 days in this throne room is Moses. When he was on top of the mountain, covered in the cloud, and God, and God tells Moses, uh, go down and build the tabernacle in the same way uh, it, that you saw the throne room. So the earthly tabernacle, Hebrew tells us, is a picture of the heavenly throne room and, and the activity that's happening there. Okay? Uh, we see it also, in, especially in the book of Revelation, that revelation is just bouncing back and forth between the troubles of this world and how it is in the heavenly throne room. Now, uh, this heavenly throne room, there's probably four things happening there. 
the first thing, and, and the way, I think the way to picture it, we don't have royalty in the United States. Apparently, it is illegal to be royal in the United States. Is that true? Like, you, if you, like, become a duke or something, uh, then you, you lose your citizenship. It's one of the marks of the United States is that we reject the whole system of, of royalty. So we don't know this that well, but, uh, but in, in other ancient worlds, you would have the king and he would have his throne room and he would sit on the throne and, and a lot of things would happen in that room. Okay? The first thing is that the king would have conversation with his friends or his counselors. There would be plotting and planning and, and activity. We see that with, for example, what we call the cabinet. You know, the president has the cabinet or the cabinet. This is, this is people that he says, these are my friends and come and give me advice. Now what we do is we appoint them as czars, which is the most un-American word that you could talk A czar? You mean the Russian way to say Caesar? Anyway, that's the idea. <laughs> that's ridiculous. But... uh but you have friends, and so there's conversations with friends. So number one in the heavenly council is conversation. Now, who is the conversation between? Uh, the chief conversation of the heavenly council is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's really quite wonderful. You know what? Did you guys just have, No, no, it's coming up. We have transfiguration coming up. You know, transfigure... Oh, no, it's not coming up. We're halfway around the year from it. But I guess it is coming up eventually. The, the, the transfiguration is part of this, is that you see the heavenly council there, that God the Father, Son, uh, and Holy Spirit are there, that Moses and Elijah are part of the conversation on the mountain. That's, what it, that's a picture of this heavenly council, okay? Number one. Uh, number two, uh, uh, judgments are made. So that we, you know, we in the United States, we have the division of the judiciary and the executive branch and all this sort of stuff. But in, but in the ancient world, you have the king and the king is also the judge. Remember King Solomon and he and the Lord grants him his uh, prayer for wisdom. And now the very first test of the wisdom is that the two women come and they both claim the child is theirs. And Solomon now is the judge and he's going to make a declaration and he's going to say, uh, um, we'll cut the baby in half and split it. You remember that? And the mom says, no, 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 she can have it. And the not mom says, fine, that's just. And Solomon is able to determine who's the real mother and he gives the baby back to, uh, to its, its mom. It's quite beautiful. But the idea that the king stands as judge is very important in the ancient world. And we're going to come back to that because this is the picture of a courtroom. And this is the... Uh, th- this is the chief picture of heaven, the chief activity that happens in the heavenly council. Okay? And that's what's happening in Job chapter 1. Okay? But there's two other things, at least that I can figure, that are also happening. The fourth is the hearing of petitions. So the kings of the ancient world, people would come and they would make requests of them. And they would, the king would either hear their petition favorably and uh, and granted, or he would hear their petition and he would refuse it, or he'd make some sort of adjustment to it. Now this is uh, this is the picture of prayer, that our prayers are being brought to the Lord, and that Jesus there on the right hand of the Father is actually carrying our petitions for us to the Father. 
He, remember Hebrews 7? He always lives to intercede for us. So that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, carrying our own prayers, probably editing them so that they're better. <laughs> Can you imagine how, what confidence we have in prayers because we know that we have a copy editor in Jesus? You say, no, let's change that. And, here, and now the prayers come to the Father perfect through the Son. Just beautiful. And so the Lord hears our prayers and He answers them. And then the last thing is praise. So that, so that the saints and the angels surrounding God's throne are always singing His praises. Uh, that's really, really, really wonderful. I mean, that's the picture of Revelation where you have this, this doxology running all the way through. Or when Isaiah sees it, what, what's happening? The angels around the throne are, are praying. The holy, 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 they sing. Now, I, I mean, this is stunning. And that this is what is ahead for us when the, when the Lord says that our time is done and now we enter into this heavenly court and chiefly we're in that place to praise to praise the Lord for all the gifts that He's given us. Now, you might notice, so, so remember the picture of, uh, of this is reflected in the, in the tabernacle. And you have the Ark of the Covenant, and you have the angels and the cherubim, and you have the incense, and you have the, the showbread, and you have the candles, and you have the uh, altar, and you have the laver. And this is all a picture in the Old Testament, of what was happening there. That the conversation of the Father and the Son was about the blood covering the Ten Commandments. I mean, can you imagine that picture? Here the priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year with a bucket full of blood, and the children say, well, what's he doing there? And here's the Ten Commandments. God's sitting on the Ten Commandments, which is a horrifying idea. Uh, it's like... Um, it's like when I got home you know, from school when I was a kid and my mom had my uh, report card sitting right next to her on the table. Now, let me change the story how it really was. It, it's like when my brothers got home from school and my mom had their report card right there. Now, I, I know oh, I'm in trouble, right? Can you imagine? Here's God and sitting right underneath him is the Ten Commandments. You know, he's tapping the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you're in trouble. I mean, you're, one of the commandments is enough. And, what, and you say, what's the priest going to do in there? Well, he's going to take the blood, sacrifice the blood of the ram, and he's going to cover the Ten Commandments. It'd be like mom just spilling her coffee on my report card. You know? Whew. <laughs> This is, what the, this is what's happening in the temple. The blood is covering over so that the things that the handwriting is written against us is now being washed away. See? That, so that the conversation of the, of the heavenly council is about the cross. Okay? And because the conversation is about the cross, then the judgment, because you're the one on trial there, the judgment is that you are forgiven, that you are righteous. That you are, even though you're a sinner, you're not condemned. So that in heaven, you are declared holy, innocent, perfect. That's our doctrine of justification. The chief doctrine of the scriptures. It's, I mean, it's absolutely stunning. 
that, that, the, that the Lord is hearing your case. And he is, he was making the judgment that you are innocent. Uh, it's almost, if, if, if it weren't that the Holy Spirit worked the miracle of faith in our heart, we could never believe that. That we sinners are declared holy in heaven. And that open, that doctrine of justification opens the way for the Lord to hear our prayers. And it also is why we praise him. It's not just that he is holy, but that he has given his holiness to us. See, so that we are praying holy, holy, holy to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Father and the Holy Son who has given us his holy word and made us his holy people. Now, that's, I mean, absolutely stunning. Now, now, we don't have the tabernacle anymore, right? But where do we see the heavenly council now? <laughs> this is really uh, in the liturgy. I mean, what is the liturgy when you come into the, that you hear the conversation of God in the word? That you hear the judgment of God in the absolution? That you offer your prayers to the Lord and that you sing his praises? Now, this is what's going on in Job. Okay, so look at this. Job chapter one. There was a man in the land of Uz, which is a great place. I mean, can you some of these biblical names are so fantastic. Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. Now, stop there, because we we want to think, okay. When it says that Job was blameless, that means sinless, no, no fault, and righteous, who feared God and who, who ran away from evil, we want to hear in our minds that Job was awesome. <laughs> that Job was a, a, a saint. That Job didn't sin. Or he at least sinned less than us. <laughs> right? Don't you hear it that way? That Job was really, really good. But that's not what the Scripture ever teaches. Was Job a sinner? Yes, he was a sinner. So how was Job righteous? Because he did lots and lots of good works? No, because he was declared righteous by God the Father in heaven. Now, we'll see that. Uh, we'll just get a little more context and then we'll skip ahead and we'll see. So uh, he had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, uh, 500 female donkeys and a very large household, I'd say. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go in and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, maybe birthday or something. We don't know exactly what that is. And would sit and invite their three sisters and they would eat and drink with them. So when the day now, this is very important. So when the days of feasting had run their course and Job would sin and sanctify them. What do you have in your versions? Consecrate. Sanctify is better. He would holify them. He would make them holy. He would, he, would, he would intercede for their righteousness. And how would he do that? He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offering according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
so that Job did this regularly. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Now, we'll talk more about all of this stuff. The Lord said to him, Satan, where'd you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, there it is. Now, we we normally read that like God is describing Job, but he's not describing Job. He's declaring Job to be righteous. God is on the throne making a judgment. Job is righteous. Job is holy. Job is, is mine. He belongs to me. Do you see that? And how did Job know that he was declared righteous? Here's the heavenly council where, where God is declaring Job to be righteous. And here Job is on the earth and he doesn't have access to this. So how does Job know it? In the sacrifice. <laughs> on the altar. So that Job knows that the sacrifice on the altar is, is delivering to him the heavenly verdict of righteousness. So let me so let me let me just pause there and, and try to does that make some sort of sense? In other words, how do you know what God is saying about you in heaven? And the answer is, it's delivered to you on the altar. Now this goes all the way back to the very very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Remember that? And then they thought they were fine because they covered themselves with the fig leaves, and they were dancing around in fig leaves. Gee, Adam and Eve and the devil. Thought everything was great. This is my now. This is my favorite. This is my favorite joke that I've ever made up. <laughs> I, I shouldn't set your expectations so high. <laughs> so Adam, Eve comes out from around the fig tree. She's got her fig leaves on, and she says, "What do you think? These are my fall colors." <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> See, it keeps on giving too. Now, uh, Adam and Eve, this is the point. Adam and Eve think that they're fine until what happens? They hear the sound of God walking in the garden and then they realize, oh, this is not enough. These fig leaves are not sufficient. My good works are not sufficient when it comes to God and his holiness. So they run. Into the bushes. Now, God restores them. Remember, Jesus visits them. He restores them. And then he gives a promise. The seed will be crushed in that, the first gospel and everything. And then, and then he takes an animal and he kills it. And he wraps them with the skin of the sacrifice. So that they're covered now, not with fig leaves, but with, but with, the, with the hide of the animal. The first death ever to happen on the earth was at the hands of Jesus, who was killing one of his little lambs so that he could cover Adam and Eve. And you've got to imagine as Adam and Eve are watching this, and as they're being wrapped with the skin still warm of this animal, the kind of horror of this thing, and they're saying, is this what it's going to take to cover my sin? And the answer is, it, no, that's not enough. It's going to be even more. It's not going to be this blood and this skin of the animal. It's, Jesus is saying, it's going to be my blood. I mean, this amazing thing that when Jesus says, when, when, when God had said, he had warned them, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Also, in heaven was, on the day that you eat of it, I will surely die. And that God himself is now going to die. 
And it's going to take the blood of God to cover them, to cover the shame of their sin. And now every time an animal is sacrificed, that's what's being preached. Every time for the for, for all the way, you, you know, whenever Abraham and and, and Jacob and uh, and Joseph and, and all the fathers, Isaac, they would go to a place and they would build an altar and they would sacrifice. And every time that sacrifice preaches this, that God is accepting the death of another in my place. Until it, until it comes to the cross. God's accepting the death of another in my place. So that when Job would make the sacrifices for his children so that they would be righteous, he's testifying to the gospel that God will accept the death of another in my place. And he will call me righteous, and I know that righteousness in the sacrifice. I know what God thinks of me because of the sacrifice. Now, now let that stick in your head. I, you know what God thinks about you because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, uh, okay. Oh, yeah. So we have that in the liturgy, by the way. We have all these things. You have the altar there. And the word from the altar is what? You're forgiven. You are holy. You are righteous. You are loved. You are a child of God. You are accepted to Him. Heaven is open. That's the word that comes from the altar. Okay? And Job knows it. Now, the devil's chief work. Oh, 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 yeah. Let me back up. One more thing. Because when we got the heavenly council, when we got the picture in Job of the heavenly council, who was there that is the surprise? Here in the heavenly council is the devil himself. Now, remember the word Satan means accuser. Okay? In other words, it's a legal uh, title. It means... Uh, who, how many of you are lawyers? Raise your hand. Uh, all right. We got a couple. Uh, you have two types of lawyers. You have the defense attorney. That's the advocate. And then you have the prosecutor. That's the devil. How many of you are prosecutors? <laughs> How many of you are Satan's? Well, that's what the devil is. He's a, he's a prosecuting attorney. Uh, Revelation 12 describes the devil like this. The one who accused the brethren day and night before the Lord. So that, the, you know, you have in the courtroom, you have the table, you have the defendant, and then you have the prosecutor, and they have a seat. They have a place in the court. The prosecutor has a place there. That's why the devil is in, this, is in the heavenly throne. It's a courtroom, and he has a place there. And he comes to bring evidence of Job's guilt. Okay? Now, that is rejected by the Father. And the great text on this is to consider Revelation 12, when the devil's seat is actually removed from heaven. I mean, that is absolutely wonderful. I think Revelation 12 is one of the most beautiful texts in all of the scripture. That seat is removed. But here we have it in Job that the devil is there and he's accusing Job. And the Lord says, no, Job is righteous. I declare him to be righteous. And now the, the devil is going to leave that heavenly court and come down to the earthly court. And he's going to try to convince Job that the word of the heavenly council is not true for him. So that he comes down and look at this. Uh, okay, uh, verse 9. 
the, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen... Now, this is going to be what by any of us would consider a very, very bad day. The picture is, you almost can see it like a play or like a, um, a movie or something. There's going to be one messenger who runs into Job and he's sitting there in his, in his home. He runs in and he gives him bad news. And then as he's finishing, another runs in and another runs in and another runs in and another runs in. And the news is getting worse and worse and worse. And Job has to... I mean, it's until finally the last one comes and Job is undone. Okay, so here it comes. Uh, There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkey feeding beside them, when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. What? And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Huh? And while he was speaking... Another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they were dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? And Job arose and tore his robe shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return there. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know if you guys have this, but this is the text. Whenever we announce the death of one of the Lord's people at church before the prayers, it's something like, you know, it is pleased Almighty God. We just are mourning the death of our uh, sister June uh, at Hope. And we pleased Almighty God in his good pleasure to take from this veil of tears to be with himself in heaven, the soul of our beloved sister June, uh, who died on Wednesday, having attained the age of 93 years, two months and four days. Her service will be here tomorrow or whatever, you know, the details. And then we have it, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and everyone says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's really, I mean, stunning to say what Job said here, that he teaches us how to receive this suffering from the Lord's hand. 
Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, the devil's going to double down. He did not sin. This is where we get this picture that Job wasn't a sinner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, no, sure, that's fine. So Job didn't sin. In other words, Job continued to trust that the Lord was holy and that the Lord was good. Even though the evidence is starting to pile up that that's not the truth. Now, so hold that in mind because it's gonna, this is what's gonna become the conflict of the entire rest of the book. Okay. So let's look at chapter two. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So we're back up in the heavenly council here, right? And there, all the angels are coming to sit in their seats. And the devil has his seat there. Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, going back and forth on the earth, walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. He still holds fast to his integrity. I mean, really, that's, he still has faith. Although you incited him against, uh, incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. Stretch out your hand now. Touch his bone and his flesh. And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd. What do you have there? A piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat on a pile of ashes. This is... Can you, I mean, imagine this? You know, some of you have had to deal at some point with some kind of enduring and chronic pain and stuff like this. It's just debilitating. Well, this is what Job has. He's got sores head to foot. He's, uh, and, they're, and it's not just normal. It's painful. They're, they're excruciatingly painful. And the best that Job can do is sit on the garbage heap with a piece of broken pottery and scrape. <sighs> And he's got nothing. I mean, every, he was the greatest of all men. You know, he had, he had all these riches. He had this huge family. It's gone. Now he can't even barely walk. The foot, the, the sole of his foot <laughs> to the top of his head. And his wife comes to him, verse 9, and says, Are you still holding fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That's bad advice. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, do you hear? Do you hear in that in that in Job's wife? Do you hear basically the logic for all of the assisted suicide laws? <laughs> right? We just passed that in California. California likes people dead rather than alive, apparently, and now it's legal to end your own life. Or to have a doctor help you end your life if you're enduring too much pain. To end the pain. Curse God and die. 
And the governor of California says, sounds good to me. I mean, that's it. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. In other words, you're not talking like a Christian. Shall we indeed accept good from the Lord? And shall we not accept adversity? What does your version have? Evil is what it is. Shall we not accept evil? And in this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay. Now, the real suffering is going to happen. So we can talk about suffering kind of in four categories. We have the suffering of loss. We have the suffering of pain. We have the suffering of shame, emotional suffering. And then we have the suffering of despair. That's kind of the four categories that our suffering comes into. And so Job has suffered loss. Now he's suffering pain. Now he's going to suffer uh, shame from his wife. And now his friends are going to come and try to tempt him to the last suffering and the suffering of despair. So Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him. Each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite. Someone said that was the shortest man in the Bible. Have you heard that? Shuhite. <laughs> See? That's funny stuff. That's like the that's this is like these Bible jokes for kids, which is what state of the United States is mentioned in the Bible in, in Genesis? It's Arkansas, because it says Noah looked out of the Arkansas. <laughs> you guys are like, we, if we stop laughing, he won't say any of that. Zophar the Namathite. For they had an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. That sounds good. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted up their voices and they wept and each tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, that was probably pretty good. We're just there and like, look, Job. You've lost everything, but you have not lost us. We're still here. Okay? But now, what's going to happen from, from chapter 3 all the way to like chapter 42 of Job? Is his friends are going to open his mouth. And, and what are they going to argue? They're going to, they're going to make, it's, it's going to go in a series, it's going to be three waves of three. Each one is going to argue. Job is going to respond. They have a first wave of argument, a second wave of argument, a third wave of of argument, and they are going to argue this, basically. God hates you. God hates you. You are a sinner. You are being punished by God. Okay? In other words... What, the, what Job's three friends are going are, are, are to form around him is, a not a, a count, is not the heavenly council, but the demonic council. And they are going to argue against this and against this. They are going to take the circumstances of Job's life Job's suffering, Job's loss, Job's pain, and they are going to use that as evidence 
to answer the question, what does God think of me? Now, that is the drama that's going to unfold in Job. And that is the drama that unfolds every time we suffer. That the devil would come with our suffering and argue that you can learn what God thinks about you because of your suffering. Now, this is the real temptation when we're in the midst of suffering. Because if I'm suffering, I'm asking the question, why? And I'm wondering if it's because I've done something wrong, that I'm a sinner and God is punishing me, or I'm wondering if it's because there's something wrong with God, that He must hate me. Now, th- this is the question that I get all the time. And it's especially not when, you know, it's, a, it's really amazing, I think, when, it's not when, when my people are suffering themselves. But you know what it is? It's their family. It's the family of the sufferers. If there's a little girl who's sick, who, who, who now is diagnosed with a chronic disease, and the parents say, why? What did we do wrong? Is God mad at me? Or it's when, you know, it's when mom or it's when dad is diagnosed with cancer or, or an accident happens and they're in the ICU and the doctors are saying, hey, in a couple of days we're going to have to talk about if we keep the machines going or not. And they say, Pastor, can we talk to you? Uh, we want to talk to you outside. No, I mean, this is, the person who's suffering is normally fine. In fact, uh, I, we, I think we handle our own death better than our family does. Have you noticed this? So I'll go into the... I'll go into the hospital room and the person is there and they're dying. Or they're about to die. And, and, uh, and they know it. And their family knows it. And their the family says, Pastor, they're going to die. Don't tell them. <laughs> they know. And I walk in and I say, so you're dying. <laughs> and the family's like this. And they say, and they are so relieved. Yes. Finally, can we talk about it? <laughs> I mean, let's acknowledge the truth of you. You know how that goes? But the family has such a tough, tough, tough time with stuff. And they have this question. Why? Why? Why is God giving this to us? Why are we suffering? And make no mistake that the devil is using that suffering to attack your hope, to attack your love, and especially to attack your faith. Look, at Job, you had all these cows. And all these donkeys. And all these children. And all this not being in agonizing pain. And when you had all that stuff, you thought God loved you. But now it's all gone. So you must believe that God hates you. You have to believe it. You think that you're righteous. But you have to know that you're a sinner. And that's their argument. God doesn't just let suffering happen to people. You surely must have done something wrong. Now, Here's the amazing thing about Job. Now, when did we did we start at 9:30? Is that about right? Okay. So here's the amazing thing about Job, is that who does Job get all this suffering stuff from? I mean, we know we kind of see behind the curtain, and we see that the suffering comes from the devil. But as far as Job knows, it comes straight from the hand of God. Shall we not receive good from the Lord and not evil? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, according to Job, why was all this bad stuff happening? 
Because God willed it. And that's really what we're going to talk about in the next hour. Because God willed it. And so Job says, I'll receive all of these things as from the hand of God and I'll still trust in Him. And here they'll come and they'll argue that God must be punishing you. And he says, no, I know better. I know the truth. Not because of what I see around me, but because of the altar, because of the preaching. I know that God loves me. Now at the end, Job goes too far. And he starts to argue that he's righteous not because of the declaration of heaven, but because of his own deeds. And at that point, a fourth friend is going to come along and say, Job, you go too far, and, and he's right. And in fact, Job doesn't even respond to that, but God himself comes down and responds to Job. Okay? And, Job, and God basically argues... Uh, Uh, God argues to Job and to the friends and he says this problem of suffering does not have an answer. It only has comfort. Now, the two uh, the two verses that I think are key here on the bottom of this first page where the Lord is talking in both of these verses, Job 38 and Job 40. And the Lord says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? (laughs) Uh, uh, sorry, that's Job chapter 38, verse 4. And if you have your outline, you can see it on the bottom of the page there. Where God basically says, um, hey, uh, Job, uh, you should be of humble mind. You were not there when I made the foundation of the earth. I think this verse, by the way, stands against all of our, uh, our evolutionary friends uh, who want to explain uh, how it was, you know, a trillion years ago when the world exploded into existence. And we, th- this still stands as a condemnation of that kind of arrogance. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then the second is, verse 40, shall, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. In other words, uh, the Lord is basically saying, shut your mouth. (laughs) Shut your mouth. But then something really incredible happens at the very end of Job. I I think this is an absolute marvel. Uh, An absolute miracle. Here's the picture. You have the heavenly council, and that's revealed to Job in the sacrifice. And then you have the demonic council, and you have Job's three friends, and they're part of this demonic council. And here's Job, and and his friends are saying, "Hey, God, uh, you're a sinner," and here. The humble sacrifice is saying, uh, hey, you're righteous. And now look at uh, look at what happens. Uh, I'm in Job chapter 42, verse seven. Job repents in verse six for his arrogance and now verse seven. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. 
Oh, an offering on the sacrifice on the altar. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because of what you have spoken of me, because, not, because you have not spoken of me what was right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord accepted Job, and the Lord restored, oh, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So that now, at the end, the Lord comes to these guys and says, Look, you need to find my voice also in the sacrifice. And you know what it is? I love you too. (laughs) So that the Lord, in all of this suffering of Job, the Lord ends up bringing Job's friends who are basically the satanic counselors and he brings them over into the counsel of the Lord, into the church, into the gospel. Now, I think this is one of the uh, the kind of undernoted parts of our suffering that in the midst of our suffering the Lord is in fact bringing more people into the church we're going to talk about this a little bit more that one of the marks of the Christian now especially in our hedonistic day where where the whole point of living is to avoid pain and we come and stand against that and say no I'm a Christian I'm therefore willing to suffer that this now becomes a witness to the world And through it, the Lord is bringing other people into the gospel. But here's the point before we move out of Job. Is that the the Lord declared Job to be righteous and he knew it because he went to church. And now the devil takes the suffering of Job and uses it to assault that truth. The devil uses our suffering to assault the forgiveness of sins. The devil uses our suffering to say that God is not present. God is not good. God is not strong. God is not there. But the Lord uses our suffering to confirm these things. So that in the midst of suffering, we we know that God is, in fact, good. Does that make some sense? Okay. Now, we want to see that. I want to magnify that a little bit. uh, So we'll work just a little bit more on this idea after the break. We'll look at the suffering of Jesus and especially this question. Because Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, asks, why? And we'll consider how that, how that conversation went. Okay? All right, so let's stop there. Uh, why don't we take a break and, and come back with questions? Is that okay? Is that good? So we'll take, uh, what do you want, 10 minutes? So we'll st- at 1035, we'll uh, kind of wrangle back together and start there. Okay, God be praised.